Hi, this is Adam Waitman from Snake Charmer and Ozzy Osbourne's band. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus on Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another edition of Focus on Metal. I think we got a pretty solid show for you this week. Probably, I don't know, a few weeks ago, Richie hit me up and uh, told me that he had just finished a conversation with uh, keyboardist Greg Jafria. And of course, I'm thinking that maybe he was talking Angel or maybe he was talking Jafria, but I should have known because, you know, one of Richie's favorite bands is House of Lords. And we've had several guys from House of Lords on the show. And, uh, yep, sure enough, Richie hit up Greg to talk all about the uh, the early days, the uh, the birth, the genesis, if you will, of the band House of Lords. And, in particular, he's really focusing in on the self-titled album back uh, in 1988, as well as Sahara. And I think every so often he touches down there a little bit with Demons Down and uh, also goes back and they talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about Jafria and you know about David Glenn Isley and, and all that good stuff so a, a little bit of other history in there and I don't think uh, thinking back now to editing it up I don't think he did anything at all talking to him back about uh, about Angel which was of course a huge chunk of Greg's career spanning from like 75 to 80 with a whole bunch of albums in there so that is what we've got going this week for you is just pretty much an hour of chatting with keyboardist Greg Jafria about the birth of House of Lords so what do you say we play a little bit of House of Lords and then we're going to roll right into Richie's conversation with Greg Jafria. Hi, Greg. It's uh, Richie from uh, Focus on Metal. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Okay. okay. So where, where are you based now? Uh, in Las Vegas. Okay. You're not in, in the music business yeah. anymore, are you? Um, well, I still play. I have a new song on Cheap Trick Record. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm writing right now. Okay. Uh, a little bit. So, yeah. Um, so having, uh, having some fun with it. Okay. But not necessarily wrote in the business. I've got some projects that uh, I'm uh, being approached about. But other than that, um, um, just just enjoying my uh, patents and my uh, gaming stuff. Okay. It must be a lot of fun for you now to actually do a little bit of music here and there that, you know, you don't have to rely oh, yeah. on that. Yeah, it is. And it's fun to play music without having to do the structure of, uh, you know, Having a record company. Okay. Okay. So, so who do you get asked about? Do you, do you still get asked to do a lot of interviews? Uh, yeah. God, I get a call a week about 
putting the bands back together and touring or playing somewhere or doing something. Um, it's it's something always questions about Angel, a lot of questions about Angel, and, uh, and then more some recently about House of Lords, you know, because of, uh, I guess there's uh, uh, some kind of issue going on where James is taking the older song and partially using them and re-recording over them and then putting them out, they're on the internet, they're on different uh, social networks or music networks, and it's it, they sound horrible. It's dreadful. I mean, I just heard a version where he took the basics of uh, Can't Find My Way Home, the remake we did, and then he had some guitar player play over the top of it that hits all these wrong notes, and it just sounds horrible. I mean, just really bad. Okay. So I tried to get a message to him to ask him to stop doing that, you know, to stop or take it down. So I'm probably going to have to get an attorney to uh, look into that. Yeah, yeah. You can you can never really get out of the music business altogether by the sounds of it. Well, no, no, you don't. I've never seen anyone do this before. Um, uh, take take songs and then try to record over the top of them and then release it as something new or attempt to re-record it exactly and then just mess it up and then put it out. It's kind of, um, you know, discouraging. Yeah. So I have a lot of people ask me questions about that. Yeah. So, of course, I have you on, Greg, to talk about um, nearly all about the debut House of Lords album. Now, I was, I was, you can probably tell I'm from Ireland, right? So I was 16, 16 or 17 when the House of Lords album came out. So I wasn't really familiar with Angel and not really familiar either with Jafria. Now, how disappointed were you when, when Jafria ended up folding? I wasn't really, um, I got, I wasn't really that disappointed. I was always dealing with just the members, you know, in and out or lead singers and lead, uh, just trying to get the right band, the right guitar combination, the right the right, the right situation. It, it was always kind of searching. So it was I um, Gene and I kind of just, I went, God, I gotta get this, get this right. And uh, and then we thought about a name change just to, to alter it. And uh, Gene came up with a list of names. I had some, and we ended up choosing, I ended up choosing House of Lords. Yeah. Now, did you know Gene well beforehand? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. And were, were, were Simmons Records the only label that were really interested in the band? In House of Lords? Yeah, in the beginning, uh, yeah. Well, uh, no, no, there were other, it was really, I was at that point in my career, as a matter of, a matter of me taking a label, not the label, it was kind of inverted a little bit. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do this with, uh, Gene came up with the idea, and he, simultaneously, he was doing this thing with Simmons, and uh, I guess it was RCA, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, it, it sounded interesting and sounded like it would be fun, fun way to do it. Okay. Now, just a general question about keyboards in the 80s. Like, there was a lot of technological advances, like, you know, synthesizers and, you know, there's electronic yeah. drums and all that. Were you on board with all of that, or did you, like, kind of resist it because it couldn't, you know, it, it wasn't as a coup? You know, for want of a better word, all the acoustics instruments were going out that they were, like, being masked with all these synthesizers and stuff like that. Were you were you a fan of all of that? Um well I was instrumental in in some of the technology. Meaning um I probably was the first person to have Cubase and uh I was signed I was involved with Steinberg earlier. Um 
Mark Baker and I kind of invented the guitar uh, by the, the combination, the first real one that really had all its multi-purposes functional one. Um, I was on the front line on MIDI and all of that stuff, so I had all my keyboards converted to MIDI. Okay. I felt I felt no need to. The technology is barely there today. Um, it's still not there today to reproduce what the real instruments do. So I don't know that that um, you, you've got a uh, like on an XY graph, it, uh, graph two converging points of people. Uh, younger people not understanding what it's really supposed to sound like, and then uh, other people that aren't necessarily musicians or audiophiles don't realize the degradation in the sound uh, and quality and breakdown of the sound. So those two points converge, and you've got um, something that is not up to par, basically. Okay. So I don't think I ever, and I didn't discourage it, but um, um, you know, it's still not there yet. There's a couple of software programs that have a couple of sounds that are unique, or they've really accomplished a lot. Spectrosonics has a thing called Omnisphere that has some string sounds and things like that. They're pretty good, but it's it's still not there yet. Yeah. Do you think that keyboard players in general got the respect they deserved in, in the 80s? Um, well, the 80s, as far as got the respect. Uh, well, yes and no. The, the music was changing. Um, uh, the, the, the 80s, well, you, it depends on which 80s music you're talking about. Like hard rock, if, hard rock in general, I mean, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about all the British, uh, you know, the Duran Durans and all that stuff, everybody had keyboards, but they were used uh, as padding and background and, you know, very functional stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, those guys are all really good. I mean, I there's some great keyboard players. So I would say they did not get the recognition, thinking about it like that. Okay. Now, what were the name? What were the band names for House of Lords that were rejected? Can you remember any of them? Oh God, <laughs> there were a bunch of them. Uh, let's see. I guess the two that made it to the short list was uh, let's see. oh, uh, Crown of Thorns. Okay. Yeah, the Crown of Thorns and House of Lords. That was the very last two on the list. Okay. You know, there was a yeah, band I, called Crown of Thorns with uh, Jean Beauvoir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they uh, they ended up taking the name. Oh, they took the name. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't. You know, they it probably went through the industry, and they probably heard somebody say that, and then they they got it. But that because we did talk about that a lot back then. Okay. Now, now what, yeah, what? We, that name was that name was available before they were together. Okay. Now, what what difference in sound did you have in your head that you were going to do in House of Lords that you couldn't do in Jafria? Was the one thing that stands out? No. No, 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 no. I was just carrying on my direction. Okay. You know, what I wanted to do. Okay. There wasn't going to be a change. I mean, the, I knew the music was changing a little bit and the, the uh, emphasis on the structure and the music and the performance was changing. The, um, you know, the lead singer look and the David Lee Roth and the, all the different, you know, that whole scene was changing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, but, but it was really, uh, Gene wanted me to, um, kind of look for a different person for the singing. You know, I was, happy with David and he just kind of insisted he goes he's I don't remember exactly how he said it but he, he really felt like he wanted he wanted to try a, a different voice okay you know trying to put a different voice out front on it yeah was that a very difficult thing to tell David that it, it was uh, a yeah. change 
Did you you had to do it yourself? Yeah. Did you? Uh, yeah. Okay. I think Gene and I did. Okay. I remember my neighbor just made. I um, uh, because I like David. You know, he's he's talented guy. I mean, super talented. And we had David and I had an ability to write a lot of songs together. So he he and I really clicked in the songwriting. Okay. So so tell me a little bit about finding James. How, how do you start to search? Because we're talking about like pre-internet here. You can't go on YouTube like Journey did and find a new singer. Oh, no, this was a pretty easy story. I mean, I think Chuck had a tape. Um, I want to say it was Chuck. I, I believe it was. Guys, some of the, these, the guys, you probably could find a, they probably have a more of elaborate story. But... Um, I had, uh, I think Chuck just played me a, a tape. That was all. And was it, that was it. And was there a lot of singers, yeah. was there a lot of tapes you went through or was he one of the first ones? No, I looked at a few, uh, let me just, let me think here. I looked at a few uh, uh, people. Okay. And did, did you bring them um, in? Did you bring them on, in to uh, try out? I, yeah, I would have tried them out or I don't know if they did a full band tryout. Uh, a, a couple of them did. Okay. A couple of them did. Yeah, but it just they didn't have um, they didn't have what I was looking for. Okay. So who else had you in the band when James was when James joined? Was he the last to join? You you already had. Oh um, yeah, yeah. The concept of the band was pretty much together. You know, still the first lineup. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting how that unfolded or how that uh, took place, but. That was, um, it was pretty much together. Okay. We just finding the singer and then, uh, and then he came on board and then he was, uh, listening to some of the other songs, you know, I think just about everything was written just about to the first house of Lords. Okay. And was there a rush to find a singer? Like, cause you probably would have had the record deal at that stage. No. You can try a rush if it, <laughs> it's not going to happen when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the worst thing you can do is rush. Okay. Rush it. Yeah. And w- was Gene happy with everybody else in the band? Because I don't think he was, ha- you know, you're, you're saying there that they weren't happy with the, they needed a new singer. Was he okay with everybody else? I think he was curious about Chuck. Whether, yeah, I think Chuck was the only one in question. But, you know, he's a great bass player. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we we sure went through our bass players and different people and guitar players and House of Lords. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now, tell me about um, getting Andy Johns in to produce this. Was he your first choice? Um, Andrew, let's see. It was my first choice. Well, I was always in contact with him or uh, in discussions, you know, because the second Chaprio such a disaster with uh, Silk and Steel was such a disaster with this horrible producer that did the uh, Night Ranger stuff. Okay. I think I blocked his name out of my memory. <laughs> uh, Glasser. Yeah, just terrible. Okay. So, wh- And um, I said that I'd never go through that again. And then, uh, um, but I was always in contact with Andy. You know, um, he was involved with me a lot. I mean, even back in the uh, Angel days, I met him all the way back in to the uh, 70s. Okay. Yeah, mid-70s or so, um, right right when Angel was around. Um, I met, you know, met him at the, um, at the uh, record plant in Los Angeles. Okay. And Gene was producing albums around then. Did did it ever come up that he'd actually, I know he's executive producer, he's listed, but did you ever think of, uh, did his name come up to produce the record? No. Okay. No, I don't think so. Because um, he knew, he kind of knew, uh, knew what I wanted on the thing. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. So. Yeah. So we had a, uh, Gene and I had a, a lot of respect for each other and, and, uh, you know, this producing a record is is uh, when I look back in it, there are guys that quote 
say they produced a record and they were just in the room. And then there are producers that really brought something to the table. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you could, uh, if Motley Crue didn't have a producer, they, there, there wouldn't be a Motley Crue out there, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, Cheap Tricks hit songs were produced very well, even though Cheap Trick could have probably done it themselves. But Richie, uh, and those guys are are, uh, are sensational. And then there are guys, there are bands that depend, or, or well, they had to, they had to have a producer. Just okay. wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. at all. So, so Greg, what made you pick Andy? Like, does it? I know you knew him, but what made you pick him, thinking that he'd be able to do the House of Lords stuff? Um, Andy, uh, is an uncontrollable force and, um, that's kind of what I needed because coming off of Angel and coming off of this, the way I was, I was, I was, I guess, unmanageable in the sense of going to do it my way or what. And I needed to find somebody that wouldn't just say yes all the time. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uncontrollable force. Okay. I mean, we would argue, we'd fight, roll around in the studio. I mean, I, I have, I remember David Glenn Isley being in utter shock. Absolute, didn't know what to do. And he was a second or third degree black belt and all this kind of stuff. Pretty tough guy. Yeah. He had left the room on the mix of Call to the Heart for Chifria. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was producing that with Andy, engineering it, and I said I want a little more bass or on there, so I reached up onto the console, turned it, and um, he sat there. A few seconds went by, and he reached over and he turned it back. <laughs> the EQ, and uh, a few seconds go by, reached back up, turn it again. He turned it back, and then it turned into he keeping he was keeping my hand away from doing it. Then it turned in, the chairs went flying, one chair hit the assistant engineer, knocked him on the ground. <laughs> so we're rolling around, the coffee table thing is turned over, drinks fly across the room. So we're pinned up, he's got me in a headlock, pinned up again. I can't breathe, my face is turning red. <laughs> and uh, right when... David Glenn opens the door and walks in and Andy's a big guy and he's got me pinned down on the floor and I'm tapping out going, okay, okay, the bass is okay. And we got up and straightened our clothes and sat down in our chairs and went back to work. (laughs) 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 And David and Isaac goes, so that's how records are made. (laughs) You know. (laughs) So it was, that was funny. Yeah, you see, but he was just a big, gigantic brute that was just, just, you know, uncontrollable. Yeah, I mean, just dear friend, genius, absolute, true genius. Yeah, see, this is the thing, Greg. I'm, you know, I, I didn't, I, I'm not a musician at all, so like, I've never made an album, and I've spoken to a lot of them, and like, the producer's job is to basically get out get out of the band what they're what they want in in their head right so if you want if you I, I've, I've often wondered about this like if you want to think to sound a certain way shouldn't the producer a lot of the time just go along with that because he's working for you guys isn't he well there's where the there's where the train wreck happens the record company usually wants a particular thing the famous producer only knows how to do one thing, his kind of way, usually. Mm-hmm. The band, five guys, there's usually probably one guy in the band or two guys in the band that kind of know the direction they want. Uh, the studio, uh, with the equipment, God knows you're going to come out with a different sound anywhere you pick. Mm-hmm. So... You have all those ingredients, and then the uh, and the producer sometimes sometimes has a ulterior motive. You know, he's been told to do something one way, or 
Dan has told him the other way, and he only knows how to do it his way. So you have a, a three-way uh, cars at a, a four-way stop with three cars hitting each other. Yeah. <laughs> did you so, did you find when you were making the debut album that the other musicians were basically going through you to go to Andy? Uh, no, because Andy was uh, um, Andy melted and blended with people uh, phenomenally. No, he 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 was as blunt as a human could possibly be. So you, you knew. I mean, if you wallowed up a song or something, uh, that's, I mean, Andy's Andy had ears. It's a, it, matter of fact, his ears were so good. His ability to here across the uh, spectrum, like an uh, like a uh, sound analysis device today. I don't even know if they have one that's barely as good as Andy's ears, but he can walk into a control room and tell you within a half a dB on which frequencies were down or up. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah, it absolutely didn't make any make any sense. Yeah. No. Uh, they could tell uh, the producers and some of the senior engineers at the record plant in the 70s and 80s were so good that um, uh, they could tell you what kind of cable was running on a speaker. You know, the quality of the cable. <laughs> yeah. So Fascinating. How many songs, Greg, did you work up for the record? Because there's only 10 on the album. Was there anything left off it? Can you remember? Oh, there was a bunch of stuff. I mean, back in the, I mean, I could sit down and write a song in an afternoon, whether it was any good or not. It's, I mean, cheap trick. Rick Nielsen and Robin Zander and I one time in a four-day period, three and a half, four-day period, wrote twenty songs. Wow. Yeah. And so, what we. you know, you you never. We had songs and bits and pieces and stuff, and then there is a collaborative. Uh, I mean, I remember really wanting the Freya stuff. It was kind of funny because "Call to the Heart," the hit song that we had, was not on the original. Going to be on the record, mm-hmm. and uh, Bruce Bird, uh, there at Camel Records, uh, he goes. You know, we need one more ballad. We need one more, you know, kind of rock power ballad kind of thing. And I go, gosh, I wrote this thing a month or so ago. I tossed it on the floor and we go find it. So I scrapped through a bunch of cassettes and things and stuff. And I found the song played. And he goes, oh my God, this is great. So sometimes you, sometimes you know if you have a good one and sometimes you don't. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, uh, I had the fortunate, um, uh, situation of recording at the record plant a lot and Ocean Way and A&M and Studios and uh, O'Henry and some of the great, great, great record, Wally, uh, uh, Wally's and, and um, uh, I got to meet and hear some of the famous songs that are in our you know, the songs that are in our hearts for rock music and you go, wow. And you, you know it's good. You don't know it's going to be that good. It's just, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. Now, did you do a, did you do a lot of um, pre production on this record with Andy? Yeah. Okay. That um, on the first record, isn't that so funny? I just uh, I had a, I've been in a golf tournament for funny for the last four days. <laughs> we were drinking like crazy people, and um, I just. <laughs> Slept in a bit this morning. Okay. So um, let me just get my bearings straight. Okay. Um, on on uh, Andy did the second record. Andy did Sahara also. Yes. And we did a lot more, obviously, pre-production. Um, on the first record, there were songs that were recorded before. Some had been recorded. You know, David Glenn Isley went out and put a record out called David Glenn's Lost Tapes or something, mm-hmm. and those were just the writing tapes. 
um, that he kind of doctored up and put that out. So pre-production, some of those were kind of pre-produced six or eight months prior to recording them already. Okay. And uh, then Andy came in and, uh, uh, you know, his particular style of recording, we play live, basically, uh, and or try to get a take, the first or second take. You know, today that's unheard of. People don't even play together when they record the stuff today. Yeah. So yeah, they I've, um, tend to teach other pro tools. Yeah, I, I've spoken to a lot of producers, and they nearly all tell me that all the bands want to play live in the studio. They're not good enough. Yeah. They just can't do it. They're not. None good of them are. Yeah. I think Don Don Henley said this said the most accurate and articulate thing I've ever heard in my life not too long ago. Don goes, in today's music, 70%, that's a big number, 70% of the artists would have been rejected to get a record deal back in the day um, because it's just inability to play their stuff or perform. Mm. I mean, today, I could go into a crowd of people and just pick somebody and say, come here, and I can make them sound good. Yeah, you know, take them in the studio and uh, auto-tune it and quantize it, time-shift it, and all of a sudden, they sound pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> but but Henley, uh, Henley said it, uh, you know, the way it was. Yeah. I agree with him. I, I agree. I think it could be higher than seventy percent, actually. Okay. Now, one of the things I've 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 known for years, and I've spoken to a few guys who've worked with Andy. He was very tough on drummers. Um, how was he with Ken? Um, he was always in awe of Ken Mary. I think that's the only way to to describe it. Um, Ken um, has, you know, like there's some people that have close to like perfect pitch or relative perfect pitch singers, and uh, 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 Ken has perfect timing. He is a unique human being. I mean, you could put a set of headphones on him and have a click track and somebody could reach up behind him and take the headphones off and then a minute later put it back on and he's he's dead on. Wow. He he was the first drummer that I'd ever heard or been in the studio where the click disappeared. We would put it up in the control room and he'd play along with it. And he was so perfect that you couldn't hear it. You couldn't hear the click track. Wow. <laughs> it, it disappeared. Um, so, um, Andy uh, came from the old school of the thing that we call sitting in the po- in the pocket. Okay? Yeah. That's where the, the drums are... The drums have to have forward motion to them because they're they're the heartbeat of the, the song. So the forward motion is there, but at the same time that it's having forward motion, the snare hit has to sit in a relaxed form, meaning it can't be pushing, it can't be in front of the tempo, if that makes sense yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, it has to sit a billionth of a second behind uh, sitting in the pocket is what we call it, just right down in, and so that the listener, most people don't, aren't uh, musicians, so, but they can recognize something bad to a degree. A lot of people can't recognize bad notes, which is fascinating to me. You know, hmm. I go back to the House of Lords songs. David, gonna, David, uh, uh, James Christian, I mean, is too good of a singer not to hear uh, disastrous bad notes and Wally musicianship of the musicians that he's got right now. I don't understand why he's putting that out, you know? Mm. So there must be some force or some uh, something that's causing uh, influence on him to agree to leave it like that and um which i was kind of shocked yeah i don't understand 
So there's something going on in his life or something or some person in his life that's influenced him. That, oh, no, that sounds good. Okay. Because the... Because the David, because the James Christian I know uh, has got too good a, a two his ears are too good to let that slide. So I found that unusual. I know I slipped off the question. No, it's okay. But, um, 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 what was the question again? Now I'll just move, I'll move it on a bit, Craig. I think you've you've okay. more or less answered it. Um, how much studio experience did James have when you went in to record the record? Um. Well, first of all, James was a natural. Um, he, uh, for his singing and for the stuff, he just was a natural. Uh, uh, absolute uh, genius voice and all of that. My my troubles really with James arose afterwards. And, and uh, you know, I'm just interviewing to hang out dirty laundry. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't his place to start diving in over you know he had a guy i forget some little guy that i think was an attorney or something that wrote songs but they worked he more collaborated with another person than myself or, or band members and i think that's where the divide really came mm-hmm. um uh, it, i used to call it the lead singer syndrome i would find an unknown singer and then have a little bit of success and then all of a sudden they thought it was his their band you know what i mean yeah so they wake up the next morning and go oh well i'm gonna write all the songs i'm gonna do it this way and this is how i'm gonna do it oh hold on hold on you didn't you know there's that's not how it works but um but uh no 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 extremely extremely a natural uh professional great voice great technique uh with andy working with him it was a piece of cake okay you know he just nailed stuff yeah. once he had he had that unique ability to if he heard it he just needed to hear it once like and then kind of get it and then a little bit of in his own you know how he would adapt or whatever he would do and then he would just nail it so i i enjoyed working with him in the uh casino in the in the uh uh, studio because of his his uh, ability to, to work like that. Yeah. Now I know Greg that the the can't find my way home. I, I'm just want to reference that on the second record. I know the vocal take on that is the demo, but was there anything like that on the first record? Where oh you... no, the vocal take, the whole thing is a demo. Well, the whole the whole song. Yeah, that was recorded. That was recorded. Uh, I mean, Doug Aldridge's tar solo was done over the top. Mm-hmm. The the all of the underlying track and everything, and then Ken played along. Ken did the drums, I think, again. Um, trying to think if yeah, ended up doing the drum part at the end again, but that was done on an Akai uh, MG14. Okay. Uh, in the studio, and in the rehearsal, um, and we we moved to uh, we were at A and M Studios in Hollywood, and I think it was like four or five thousand dollars a day is the cost of that studio, and we had we had uh, we were re-recording it. And it just wasn't sounding right. We could not, we couldn't capture. We couldn't capture it. it we tried everything. This is with Andy and everybody. We could not, I was not satisfied with it. It was just not working in the true sense of the word. So what we did is we brought the Akai machine in, and that was just a simple commercial, you know, regular kind of, little machine that you'd use um, basically musicians would use it as a writing or tape to just make stuff for reference mm-hmm. and uh, um, the engineers hooked it up directly into the console with the big console A&M and so we just transferred everything over um, 
to the to the main to the master tapes, you know the masters. Then back then we would have been running the two twenty four track studios together, linked together, and so that would that was transferred over, and then we recorded over the top of it. So that is basically a ninety dollar demo. <laughs> Was there after after we spent forty thousand dollars trying to record it the other way? <laughs> was there um was there any song Greg on the first album with a story like that, or did you have to work them all up again in the studio? Um, no, we everybody you have to understand how every musician was accomplished. I mean, you're talking really good musicians. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Um, top. That's why, in a non-egotistical way, and maybe it was kind of uh, House of Lords was a good name because in the uh, I guess medieval times, if if we if we were uh, all landowners or barons or lords, we would have been on equal footing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was, we we didn't, um, it was, uh, it was fabulous musicians, just without a doubt. And then, you know, I have to say, uh, with House of Lords, because there is a lot of cloudy things that are out there. Um, um, but Lanny is uh, incredible. Um, but Doug Aldrich was the guitar player that was, the most sensational, unbelievable guitar player. I, one of the best I've ever worked with. Hey guys, this is Doug Aldrich, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. And we have these other people that were in. It seems like for a day. I mean, there was some guy named Michael Guy. Yep. That I hired, uh, literally to uh, literally hired him for a photo shoot and then to tie out. And we brought guitar players in this was at a&m there's this is a funny story but i think this is on the uh this would have been on which record the second record sahara yeah i had a lot of friends uh that were great guitar players so chris impelitary mitch perry all those kind of guys doing their own thing you know mm-hmm. so a lot of those guys play, i mean just <laughs> great great guitar players crazy good and uh but I do remember auditioning. Now they didn't audition. Uh, don't don't get me wrong. They were doing their own thing. They were guests. But I did audition some guitar players, and I remember uh, Rick Nielsen and Peter Frampton were at the studio, and I remember I had to either go somewhere or take a break, or I was going crazy listening to this stuff. And I remember telling Frampton and Rick. You guys sit in the control room and listen to some guitar players for a while, and if there's anybody good, let me know. <laughs> I remember leaving. I remember leaving them in the room to do that. Uh, but um, this guy named Michael guy fit the bill for the look of the thing, and he, I think he did a solo. We were we were using a song for the guys to play, and I can't remember which one it was, but it. Wasn't can't find my way home. It was some other song. I've interviewed Doug before, and I asked. I did a career chat with him, and I talked about the Sahara album, and he said he did probably about ninety percent of the guitars on it. Yeah, I would say ninety percent or more. He might even be higher. And then I was the other guitar. Rick Nielsen played some guitar on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitch Perry, Chris Impelitary. I'm trying to think who else. What other guitar player? But it was mostly Doug. It's okay. all of Doug on on can't find uh, can't find my way home if I remember. Okay. The the problem now, Greg, I think, or, or back then, right, is there was no internet. So if I bu- I bought the Sahara record, he's pictured on the back. I assume he played on the whole album. Exactly. You're you're exactly right. Um, we at we get we didn't know that that was going to be that big of a uh, backlash and. Um, um, gosh, and there was another little guy. There was another guy that tried out and had pictures with us too, with black hair. Dennis Jake. Um, oh yeah, Dennis. That's Demon. Yeah. That's Demons Down, the next record. Yeah, 
and he was a nice fellow, but he still didn't play on a lot of stuff. I remember, mm-hmm. but um, you know, Doug is an extraordinary guitar player. Yeah, just well, as a matter of fact, he's one of the best Les Paul players I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, and he's he's a really nice guy too. Oh my God! Uh, well, they all are. All those guys. Now, why did why did Lanny leave? When did Lanny? No, why why did he leave? Why? Um, Lanny's uh, an, Lanny's uh, a, a beautiful person, uh, and just what makes life unique. He was just a different sort of fellow. Uh, he. Uh, I guess if you interviewed them, they would probably say I'm difficult to work with maybe a little bit, but maybe I don't know. But he he's really, really, really talented guy, and you can't at some point you can't take super talented people and then try to completely mold them into what your vision is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's the. And I would say that about every uh, the, the musicians of the original House of Lords, that you, you they're so good that you, it, you they only are going to we're all going to work together because we want to. You can't they can't be forced. Yeah, um, you know. Yeah, that's why so many bands have so many. Um, that's why I always thought the name was appropriate, House of Lords. Mm-hmm. These guys were all masters in their uh, particular field. Okay. And uh, uh, people would call it a super group or whatever it is, but they, they, they really was a, a bunch of really, really, really good musicians. I mean, you know, Chuck is Chuck is phenomenal bass player. So. Yeah. How, how did you feel about being termed a super group back in like 87, 88? Because they're all doing it now, well, but back then there wasn't many. Yeah, I know. There are very few of them. Um, uh, now you take it as a compliment, but the, uh, all of us knew each other. Everybody knows each other. Uh, it'd be like the guys having to go at each other laughing about, you know, it's, we wouldn't take it serious. I think that's the right way to say it. Okay. So uh, it was a compliment, but I, I think you'd be foolish to take it serious because there's so many, different metrics for measuring, you know, some people measure success, how many records you sold or how the tours did or whatever, but, you know, if you were a good guy and uh, talented and all that stuff, that was important. Yeah. Now, now whose idea was it, Greg, to put Love Don't Lie on it? Because that's a cover version. Did you resist that at all? Uh, yeah, I never liked that song. I just still don't under, still don't get it, get it, get it. Uh, my, my biggest mistake was not, uh, being more forceful about song selection and being more determined. You said earlier uh, about rushing to things and I, I, I answered your question correctly, particular to the exact situation you ask about. Yeah. But in general, in retrospect, my biggest mistake in all the bands I was in was was slowing down the recording process and getting the right songs. Okay. Um, there are just disastrous songs on all those records that I just don't care about. Wow. You know, they were just... They were just not up to up to what they should have been, I'm going, and we put them on put them on anyway. I'm going to I'm going to name one. Voice. I think is I, that's one of them. Looking for strange, I sounds out of place on that record. Very Van Halen. Uh, yeah, Van Halen is, that was that was one that was uh, 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 once again that was a letting off steam song. Okay, meaning. All, we have all these good musicians that can play at, you know, pretty fast tempos and dead on and all this stuff. And and uh, I guess we were hearing other bands. I don't remember if Hot for Teacher was out yet or it came out after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it came out after that. No, Hot for um, Teacher was 84. 84? Yeah. Okay. So that would have been after that. And there was other songs in 
that genre of a pretty fast tempo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you reach a point where, hey, I can do that too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kiss of Fire was another one. Yeah. Um, Rick and I wrote this thing, what uh, was a slip, slip, of the tongue, slip of the Tongue, mm-hmm. you know, was one. Well, that was one of the songs we wrote in our little twenty song, you know, bout. Yeah, that, that was written when we knocked that out in an mm-hmm. hour. Yeah, whose idea, Greg, was it to put the acoustic guitar on the the beginning of Jealous Heart? Because I think that's brilliant the way it goes from the acoustic into the whole band. Yeah, uh, Lanny, Lanny would have done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's a great song. Yeah, because. Uh, if Lanny was in the studio just doodling around, you could just have recorded that and put a whole record out with just that. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was that good. Just a couple of questions, Greg, before I leave you go. Okay. Um, were you happy with the way the album sounded when it was done? Because I've heard from a couple of the guys who played on it that they preferred the, the Sahara sound than the debut. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think the Sahara was a little more open a little more, you know, bigger sounding. But then there again, there are songs on the Sahara one that wasn't quite there. Um, Yeah, I would say overall maybe. Maybe the sound a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah. I think we had a little bit more time or different studio. Uh, You know, there's so many different reasons why things come out like that. I have a final question. Someone in the band okay. told me this, and someone else corroborated it now. So this this one might surprise you. You're in an airport in Seattle, and you had this game in where, where I think you were in Seattle. And okay. You, you had this game where you'd like hit each other, messing, and one of you guys was asleep, and Chuck hit one of you guys, and he ended up having a fight in the airport and missing the plane. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was it me? I, was it me involved in that one? I'm, I'm, I think it might, I don't know who it was, but James Christian told me it, and Ken Mary said, "Yeah, that's pretty much what happened," and that ended up with Chuck being thrown out of the band. That was one of the main reasons. Oh, mm, I rem- yeah, I remember an incident. I do, but I don't know if I was involved in it. Okay. Um, I do remember an incident. Chuck was not allowed to go on the flight or something. Correct. I think security saw it, but I don't think it was between he and I. Okay. It might have been. Might have been. <laughs> um, but I don't think it was between okay. he and myself. All right. I think it was some someone else. But I remember a scuffle um, at an airport somewhere, and Chuck wasn't allowed on the flight and had to take it there for one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But we would all, that's, God bless, it's been going on. Forever, a frogging or a little punch, you know, horsing mm-hmm. around. Yeah, you know, God, I remember uh, we're uh, we're on the um, tour bus in the south somewhere. This is Angel, if I remember correctly, and we did that terribly bad. We were always frogging somebody when they're doing an interview, and you hit a little spot in the back, and it hurts. Yeah, <laughs> and and uh, uh, I had walked to the bathroom of the tour bus, a tight little room on the bus and just this point you got to, to standing up there uh, and all of a sudden I'm hitting the roof and bouncing all around <laughs> the bus had had a blowout on the front tire and the guy's arm was hanging down in the steering wheel wow. so it broke his arm when it swerved off the road hit a sign and uh, we, we were okay but it was pretty scary and we were in the middle of nowhere so uh I'm getting off of the bus, and Barry, the drummer, hits me in the. Uh, he got me once there. He hit me in the back. I go, oh, okay. And so we find uh, airports, small airports, and there's two six-seater planes in there. So the band has got to get to, I want to say, Baton Rouge or uh, Houston or some, uh, some smaller town, not Houston. Yeah. And we were like in Alabama or something. And uh, um, so we rented these two planes, and I'm going to get on, and I'll be damned if Barry doesn't hit me again, walking up on the wing of the plane. <laughs> so now I go, okay, okay. 
So I'm there was just one pilot, so I'm sitting in the co-pilot seat, and yeah. Barry is sitting right behind me next to the little window, there's a glass window right by his head. Uh-huh. So we're flying up in the cloud, above the clouds, going along, and I told the pilot I could fly a little bit. I said, can I fly for a minute? You know, give me the wheel. So I'm sitting there in the wheel, and I look back, I see Barry's head is about three inches from the window, and I whip the plane to the left, turn really hard, and it slams his head into the, windsh- into the window. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the pilot took the wheel back, goes, don't touch that again. <laughs> oh, Greg, that's great. <laughs> True story. Okay, Greg. Well, but anyway, talk to you, yeah, talk to you thanks, later. Thanks for the hour for, for chatting to me, okay? Take care of yourself. with a track off of Sahara. That one is Kiss of Fire, which is another uh, kind of a tour de force on that one with, of course, uh, Great Trafir on keyboards. Got uh, Doug Aldrich doing the screaming guitars on there. Chuck Wright on bass. Ken Mary on drums. And, you know, great stuff that uh, Greg talked about, uh, how awesome Ken was in the studio. And, uh, yeah, there's another another track that proves that out. And of course, you know, we also talked a lot about Sahara and people that are on there. But, yeah, you know, you think back... A lot of different people on here. Rick Nielsen doing uh, some lead guitar, a little bit of backing vocals on one of the tracks. Got uh, Chris Impelitary, past uh, Focus on Metal guest, doing the opening solo on Sahara. Mike Tramp is on there doing back vocals. There you go, another Focus on Metal guest right there. It's even got uh, David Glenn Isley, Steve Plunkett, Ron Keel doing some backing vocals on there. And uh, even uh, even Robin Zander from Cheap Trick. So all kinds of people on here doing stuff on Sahara. And, of course, I forgot to mention that, uh, you know, James Christian on, on vocals. Yet another Focus on Metal guest. The uh, the main voice of House of Lords in uh, Loud and Proud right there on Sahara. So, anyways, big thanks to uh, Greg Jafria for taking a lot of time to talk to Richie all about the beginnings of House of Lords. And you know what? Also, big thanks to Richie for taking uh, pretty much an hour out of his life to do that. He doesn't get a lot of time these days, but the fact that he... Uh, you know, takes that little time that he's got to be free and is manages to uh, put it to some incredibly good use for us here at Focus on Metal. So uh, much appreciation to my buddy Richie bringing us the great interviews still right here on Focus on Metal. And, you know, Richie and I are hoping that uh, between this week and uh, when next week's rolls, that we're going to actually get together in the studio and do that discussion we've been trying to do for a couple of weeks. Got a couple of things we'd like to knock out before we go on summer break. So hopefully all the stars will align this week and we will be uh, in the studio manning the mics and doing a little bit of discussion to tie out the last few weeks of June 
before we go on the uh, the mentally and most metal mandated summer break. And uh, yeah, one more thing before I get out of here for the week, just want to let everybody know that uh, Fang Von Rothenstein, as well as the rest of our buddies in Lords of the Trident, they have launched a Kickstarter for their brand new album. Kickstarter uh, kicked off. Uh, I think about two weeks ago. So if you go up to kickstarter.com and type in Lords of the Trident, you will get uh, the links to go up and help them support recording their brand new album. Lots of good stuff up there. And I think, you know, the sweet spot, in my opinion, the sweet spot for all of it is like right there, $100 range, you can be a metal lord. So uh, anyways... You know, you want to keep uh, great metal coming, then you absolutely have to support it. And I definitely recommend you support Lords of the Trident. You know, they've been on the show a couple times, and uh, hopefully they'll come back on again and give us the lowdown on the brand new one that is being sponsored right now up at Kickstarter. So, anyways, that is it for this week. That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, Have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.